Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the bipartisan infrastructure bill finally passes, but there seems to be a lot of misinformation about what exactly is in the bill. Plus, Republicans who supported the BIF, as it's known, face significant backlash from within their own party. Plus, we'll have a preview of the recall election of Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawant in Washington. Gets a new arbiter of elections. But first, joined as almost always by Matt Markovich. And, well, the budget negotiations at Seattle City Hall continue. Let's just say some of these provisos, some of these earmarks, some of these things that they're spending money on, at least on the surface, seem a bit ridiculous. A couple of million dollars for a toilet to begin with, and uh, let's <laughs> let's start right there, Matt. Uh, that seems to be the headline grabber, and we'll get to some of the others first. But what's this about spending millions of dollars on a toilet? Well, that's just one of the things that the council members have added to their wish list of agenda or wish list of a budget for 2022. You know, uh, Teresa Mosqueda, head of the budget committee, has submitted her balanced budget. Uh, for uh, the council to vote on, and this is her interpretation, and as well as some other council members of the budget committee, on what should or should not be in Mayor Birkin's submitted budget. So that's what the council does right now. They spend weeks and weeks looking at her budget, the mayor's budget, and then decide, oh, I don't like that. We would rather do this instead. And so there's a long list of let's do this instead, 133 items of the council that they want to amend the uh, the mayor's budget with. And one of them, as you just brought up, was a million dollars for two toilets and $400,000 for porta potties for the homeless, which you can understand that one, but a million dollars for two permanent toilets. And when I looked it up, it's uh, akin to what was done in Ballard at the Ballard Commons. They put in what's known as a portable, excuse me, a permanent Portland loo that's what they're called, $550,000 to construct. And the last time I checked, that thing has been closed on and off for months and months because of all the ongoing problems at the Ballard Commons Park. And then you have, speaking of that park, you have Dan Strauss, who's asking for $700,000 or so to build a brand new playground at the Ballard Commons Park. But as you know, that park has been uh, infiltrated with tents and structures and crime and drug dealing and and it's really not opened up the kids right now so i guess it's wishful thinking that they if can you put build in. it if they will come sort of thing yeah yeah but first you're gonna have to deal with the people who live there right now and the city hasn't been able to deal with that yeah with regards to the toilets and, and the spending the millions of dollars on on two permanent toilets and like you said the the other couple hundred thousand dollars on the porta potties which i think everyone can understand and probably get behind but hasn't the city done this before? I remember 10, 15 years ago, this whole fiasco of these automated toilet facilities that they set up mm-hmm. throughout the city that was an experiment that failed miserably because they became havens for drug operations. That's exactly right. The, and those were a million-dollar toilets down in Pioneer Square. And as you said, it failed miserably. There is a need for public toilets. There's no question about that at all. Uh, there's the city of this size has very few open 24 7 toilets so this is supposedly be two of those permanent toilets for a million dollars but then you go into all the other stuff that the city council is cutting you know fifty thousand here one hundred fifty thousand there for programs actually people like and then you wonder whether or not the million dollars is correct in its perspective and I, i should point out that this is the this is the discretion i'll call it the discretionary funding that the city council has at its beck and call of a $7 billion budget. They're not 
they're basically focusing in on over a, a million, a billion dollars or so. I, I don't have the exact number in front of me this time of what they have some more choice and leeway with the rest of the money is a lot of labor contracts that you have to follow with city light, uh, other departments, things that they're committed to doing as a city. So when you think about your pocketbook, you know, you have your rent, you have your, your electricity and you have, you have kind of the necessities you have to pay. And then after that you have money for food and, and your discretionary funding. And that's what the city's council is basically dealing with in its budget. It's that discretionary, more of a discretionary decision on how we want to spend our money based on the policies that we, we like. And as we know that the city council policies tend not to gel sometimes with the mayors. So where are they cutting in order to pay for these toilets? Well, they're going to be, they're just rearranging money. Uh, and, People obviously go straight to the police department, and that's probably the most controversial cut uh, that's being discussed right now compared to what the mayor had proposed. And so the city council is basically cutting $10 million out of this SPD's budget that these, the mayor had in there. And these cuts uh, are probably the most controversial part of the budget. Uh, they include cuts for keeping people keeping officers on duty, keeping them in the department. They, and interesting enough, the city council is estimating that 125 officers will leave the department in 2022, whereas the police department itself estimates they're 94. Now, why is that a factor? You know, there's a difference of, you know, 31 um, officers there. Well, that plays a big role because the city council now says, well, we're only going to fund X amount of police officers because we think, hundred and um, you know twenty five will leave next year, so therefore they're going to give the department less money. And if they don't leave, assuming the attrition rate is not that high, then you're going to be short money for payroll for the officers because the, the city council kind of overprojected how many officers have left. And over the last two years, though, as we know, more than three hundred twenty five officers have left the department for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, basically, it all stems from the beginning of the George Floyd movement. And like you said, the Seattle Department's already short-staffed, and they're they're seeing another potential reduction of that many in the coming year. And the city council's okay with that. Well, they they expect it's going to be more, and they cut the budget that the mayor had put in for retaining officers, so they don't leave and go to another department. And so the council also cut one point three million. Uh, basically an expansion of the popular community service officer program. Those are the officers we've always known to be at the schools to do some uh, neighborhood work. Um, again, the council thinking that maybe a non-uniformed officer, non-sworn officer that has to carry a gun, maybe possibly could do similar jobs. And so that's where a lot, some of this other money is going to is community programs, uh, participating budget programs where the community decides how the money should be spent. There's still money there for that, but they're not going to be cutting. Uh, they're not going to maintain these, the budget that the mayor wanted, at least with the police department. Now you mentioned participatory budgeting. We'll have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll dive into what exactly that is and how there seems to be little oversight of the taxpayer's money when the Como Politicast continues after this.
Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula, along with Matt Markovich. We're talking about Seattle's proposed budget for the coming year and some of the things the city council has decided to fund or not fund. During all of this, the idea of participatory budgeting has come up. Now, the current and outgoing council president, Lorena Gonzalez, a big fan of participatory budgeting. But, Matt, what exactly is it? Well, the last year or this year, there was roughly $30 million that was set aside to start for participatory budgeting. Basically, that is money. Think of it as a bank account. Here's $30 million, giving it to the community. And then the community, through a process known as participatory budgeting, where they go ahead and decide uh, as a neighborhood, well, how should we spend the $1 million that we're being given here for our neighborhood? Uh, Should it go to a park? Should it go to uh, a community center? And the neighborhood basically votes on its own and decides how that money should be spent. And so there's been a big push for participatory budgeting. The mayor has been behind it. But again, I can't tell you right now one project that I'm aware of, and that's not saying it hasn't happened, uh, a well-known project where participatory budgeting has been done, where they've decided and the money is going there. I believe there are some programs, but not uh, a large one at scale. And now the council is continuing that idea of participatory budgeting um, and letting the community decide what tens of millions of dollars will go to. Now, the Seattle City Council, though, even with with all of this stuff that they're doing with the budget, whether it's participatory budgeting, which you could argue is political insulation, you know, we've had those discussions about other issues with the homeless, uh, regional homeless authority in the past, uh, or whether it's cutting cops to pay for public toilets, that sort of thing. You're having a new city council coming in. At least one new member is going to be there next year, and you're going to have a more conservative mayor, conservative, quote unquote, not progressive. And it looks like the council will not have a veto proof majority as they have had in the past. So all of this could change very quickly. That's right. Because the council going into this new year with Sarah Nelson on board, and if Sarah Nelson, Alex Peterson, who's also considered somewhat of a moderate, and Deborah Juarez, who's also considered somewhat as a moderate, if they vote as a block, they basically can prevent anything uh, the council from overriding a veto of what Mayor Harrell would want to have done. And if Mayor, Mayor Harrell is more toward the center rather than obviously uh, Lorena Gonzalez was much more to the left, you have more of a moderate leadership in the city of Seattle, not as leftist. Uh, it's still the majority leftist on the on the council, but still politically, that's a vote in favor of people who want to see a little bit more mainstream council and a mainstream mayor. When we talked about last week the results of the election, do you think Seattle is starting to shift away from its ultra progressive mentality and ultra progressive reputation? I don't think so, and that's just my personal opinion, having watched this for a long period of time. I think there was this, I think you had an after effect of the George Floyd movement and the defund police talk, and you saw a little spillover that in this particular election. Uh, It can't go unnoticed as a trend in Seattle that when the early votes came out, uh, the moderates, if you want to have a lack of a better word, came out to vote early and had the early mail-in ballots counted. And it was the more progressive votes that did stream in as as expected now in these elections, mm-hmm. the last couple of days of the vote count. Obviously, everyone had turned the votes in at the same time, 
But those latter ballots that hit the uh, ballot boxes and were put in the mail the last day or two seem to be coming from the progressives who wanted to vote for their candidate and the council, those progressive candidates like Lorena Gonzalez and Nikita Oliver and Nicole Thomas Kennedy for city attorney, they all up their ballot count uh, significantly in the later counts this week. So it just shows you that, that there's a trend of how the city responds in an election where you have the progressives uh, voting later. And so that's why I think maybe had Nicole Thomas Kennedy not screwed up with uh, her tweets and had Lorena Gonzalez not had that flop with her ad, you would have had a closer race and a progressive could have won. Uh, so I don't think it's a it's not signifying a big change in Seattle politics. And finally, before we let you go, kind of looking forward to the next election, which is going to be a special election held in December about the recall of Shama Sawan. This is District Three, so it's not citywide. It is her own district, which is arguably the most liberal district in the city, the state, and possibly the country. Uh, it is a very very blue district up there on Capitol Hill. As you talk about the people who mailed in their votes or or voted early, tended to be more moderate. The more progressives came in late. The progressives support Shama Sawant. But people who vote early tend to vote more often, including in special elections such as a recall election. Does the fact that that this election is going to be held in December and not in November, do you think help or hurt Shama Sawan? People say it's going to hurt her. I don't know why, because she has clearly shown and her supporters have shown that they can do a great get out the vote ground game as they have done in the past and has, and as was done late in this particular election. So, I think the polls could show that she would be recalled right up to the last moment. But in the end, if if the yes for recall is ahead by just seven points, when the rest of the vote count comes in, I bet you, you know, it's going to swing the other way. It it did it last uh, previous election for her. It did it in a way with the previous, uh, this this election with the progressive candidates, there was at least a seven to 10 percentage point swing at the very end. So I think that it's, it's a toss up. I, I really do. She's got a strong support in that district. Uh, despite what the rest of the city may think of her, her district has voted her in uh, twice, excuse me, three times now. So it's not going to be easy for, to recall Shama Sawan. All right, Kamos, Matt Markovich, of course, we'll chat with you as soon as we get the results of that election and much more. Thank you, as always, for your time and insight. You're welcome. When we come back, countering misinformation about the recently passed bipartisan infrastructure bill when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, after months of wrangling and, well, quite frankly, years of discussion about it, an infrastructure package has finally passed Congress. President Biden intends to sign it into law, but there seems to be a lot of controversy over what constitutes infrastructure and what is 
in the package itself. Now, Republicans have said that uh, there's really only about 11% going to actual infrastructure, but is that true? Joining me now from Washington, D.C., is Glenn Kessler. He's a reporter with Washington Post. And so let's start with that number, 11%. Is that accurate? No, that's, that's a completely wrong number. So what what actually are we seeing in this bill? What's in it? Where's the money going? Okay, well, there you know there are different ways you can measure what is quote-unquote infrastructure. But let's just start with fixing highways and bridges, because no one actually disputes that. And 20% of the money, uh, $110 billion, because uh, the total package is $550 billion worth of new money. So 20% of that would go to fund roads, bridges, and surface transportation programs. So right there, we're above 11%. But then on top of that, they have other things that most people would consider infrastructure. There's $39 billion for mass transit. There's $66 billion for passenger and freight rail. $25 billion for airport improvement, $17 billion for ports and in, inland waterways. And that's another, you know, almost $150 billion. So uh, that gets you close to 50% being spent on infrastructure. But then there's also $55 billion on wastewater and drinking water and water supply, uh, uh, which most people would say sewage and drinking water systems are infrastructure. So that gets you about 57% of the bill. There's also $65 billion for improving broadband access, which is particularly going to help people in, in rural and red state areas. And a lot of people would argue that, you know, broadband is actually, you know, the equivalent of the post office was 200 years ago. So no matter how you slice it, a fair amount of the bill is actually for what most people would say is infrastructure. Well, this bill took quite a while to get through Congress, and it is called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, at least in, in, in the short name of it. How much Republican support did it get for passage? It got a fair amount of Republican support in the Senate. 19 Republican senators voted for it, including Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader. In the House, it got 13 Republican votes, which isn't a lot. It's particularly not a lot if you segregate out New York and New Jersey. So uh, it was 60 percent of the Republicans in New York and New Jersey that supported it. And then only 3% of Republicans in the rest of the country. So what was their concern? What was the Republicans' concern over this bill? Was it simply the price tag because it was so expensive? Uh, Well, they offered a variety of reasons. I think the main thing was just to deny Biden a victory. and, And because Donald Trump, the former president, was railing about it, you know, as you may recall, Donald Trump never had any success getting an infrastructure bill through Congress. Neither did Barack Obama. I write fact checks at the Washington Post. I was fact checking statements that Barack Obama was making about his infrastructure plan 10 years ago. So that shows you how long it's taken for something to happen. And I think a lot of the reluctance to support it in the House was simply to deny a victory for the Democratic president. Uh, and in fact, there are already efforts to basically, you know, strip these Republicans that supported a committee assignments and that sort of thing, which shows that it was really mostly politics as opposed to the actual issue. I mean, one thing I, you know, like I said, Trump has criticized this, but, you know, he wanted, you know, if you use the metrics that he used, what he called infrastructure uh, when he was president, then at least 40% of the bill would be what Trump wanted to spend money on, which was roads, bridges, rail, airports, ports, inland waterways. So, Uh, you know, if Trump were president and he got the bill, I'm sure he would be bragging about it. So why does it take so long to get a bill on infrastructure passed? It seems like this is something that at least the two parties would somehow agree on. But yet, as you say, it's taken over 10 years. Right. Well, there there, are 
uh, one of the big issues before was how to finance it. The Democrats had always wanted to finance it with new taxes on the wealthy. Republicans wanted to do something which was more leveraged, where uh, you would have a certain amount of, of, private, of public money, and then it would be financed mostly by private money, which Democrats rejected. So what Biden managed to do was get through a package that was not financed with higher taxes, but also did not involve that concept of private-public partnerships. Uh, so we managed to thread a needle in a way that has not been thread before. So where does the money come from? Well, uh, some of the money comes from um, uh, uh, leftover money that was in a coronavirus package that was not spent. So they moved it over and said, well, we didn't spend that money. We're going to spend it on this. Uh, there was things having to do with uh, spectrum auctions and things like that. Uh, there's a bit of a disagreement with the Congressional Budget Office. The, the lawmakers that passed it said it does not increase the deficit. The Congressional Budget Office says they didn't fully finance it. It's the usual kind of uh, budget shenanigans you have in Washington. But nevertheless, it does mean it's a significant amount of money because it's 550 billion dollars over five years uh that's going to make a real difference in a lot, lot of communities and so when are we going to start seeing the first groundbreaking projects that this thing finances uh the white house has said it's going to be within a couple of months we'll have to see about that but uh you can imagine that this white house which has uh not necessarily had some big uh you know giant wins so far uh is going to be uh, publicizing this quite a bit. So if there's a groundbreaking ceremony, there'll be an administration official standing next to it, I'm sure. All right, Glenn Kessler, fact checker with the Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Still to come, we mentioned blowback against Republicans that supported the bill. We'll dive into that part of the story when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. And while the bipartisan infrastructure bill has been passed, President Biden has or will sign it. And now there's pushback. The 13 House Republicans who voted in favor of that infrastructure bill, despite 19 Republican senators voting for it, now facing reaction from the more conservative members of their party. Joining me now from Washington, D.C. is ABC's Andy Field. And what's going on here? Jeff, remember Republicans were complaining earlier this year that Joe Biden and the Democrats didn't want to do anything in a bipartisan manner. Well, uh, they did. They made lots of concessions. And the Republicans, as you mentioned, uh, nearly 20 in the, in the Senate and 13 in the House, voted with Democrats on a bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Roads, Bridges, and Broadband bill that passed last Friday and the president plans to sign next week. And guess what? The majority of the Republicans don't like bipartisanship, not when it comes to this. Uh, They're threatening to primary these guys out of office. They want to strip them of committee assignments. And the usual suspects are on the list in terms of uh, leading this this push, including former President Trump, who gave remarks at a GOP fundraiser this week saying that uh, uh, these Republicans who passed basically exactly what he wanted to pass uh, several years ago as an infrastructure bill, uh, suddenly it's not a good infrastructure bill that they were just helping Democrats and they should be punished for this. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, all publicly calling for retaliation against members. Uh, one of the Republicans who supported the bill, Michigan Representative Fred Upton, 
says he received more than a thousand calls, some of them including death threats after Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, by the way, has almost no power in Congress other than to go on Twitter. Uh, she tweeted out his phone number. Remember, Marjorie Taylor Greene was stripped of all her committee assignments, uh, punishing her for some of the lies and things that she was posting on Twitter and other places. So we've talked a lot about what was in the infrastructure bill. What is it that these more conservative members of the GOP are taking issue with? Is it the fact that it just simply gives the Biden administration a win? That's it. They, there's a, they're not coming up with anything in the bill that uh, anyone's particularly angry about. In fact, it helps thousands of people, millions of people in uh, very red states rebuild their roads, their bridges, make things safer, uh, bring broadband to rural areas. This is a net plus, which is why so many Republicans voted for it. Uh, the argument isn't necessarily with the bill itself, but just the fact that uh, uh, President, former President Trump uh, said in one of his speeches that this is just to help Joe Biden and the Democrats win re-election next fall, which if you are the most cynical person in the world, nothing would get done in Washington other than what your party wants. Well, cynicism in politics, yeah, I've never heard that before. No, it's new. <laughs> but uh, what's the disconnect between the Senate and the House? Because as we talked about, 19 Republican senators out of 50 decided to vote for this, including the Senate Minority Leader in Mitch McConnell. Well, the, the difference is that uh, the Republicans don't want this tied to the bigger social spending bill, and that's exactly what happened. There was a deal made uh, that uh, they managed to pass a rule and get this thing done, uh, and so the Republicans saying, boy, if we hadn't passed that, then this wouldn't have passed either. The, the one that's going to pass, well, at least Democrats hope it's going to pass in a couple of weeks, this is that bigger social spending bill that includes early childhood education, uh, includes more health care, more uh, help for parents, all kinds of, of things that Republicans are saying are too expensive. And yet the Democrats insist it pays for itself with higher taxes on wealthier Americans and corporations, also things that Republicans don't seem to want. So how much of a win was this for the moderate Democrats as opposed to the progressives led by our own Pramila Jayapal here who wanted these two bills tied together? Well, they're kind of tied together. They at least got past that thing. You know, there is no filibuster in the House as there is in the Senate where you have to get 60 votes to get uh, to at least a vote on something. In the House, you have to vote on the rule. And the, the rule is a very complicated a set of instructions on how you will vote and what's going to be in the bill when you get to the actual vote. So they managed to tie that to this bill, this infrastructure bill, to say, okay, we're not going to vote on the infrastructure bill unless we also vote on the rule. They did that. And now what they're waiting for is for the Congressional Budget Office, a nonpartisan group of number crunchers who are going to look at the thing and say, does this really pay for itself? And if it doesn't, how much is going to add to the deficit before people vote on it, which they're hoping will happen before Thanksgiving. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Meanwhile, international travelers have resumed using America's crumbling infrastructure. That part of the story from Como's Elisa Jaffe. It's huge news for people around the world wanting to come to America. Borders are open again to fully vaxxed travelers. Starting today, foreign national air travelers to the United States will be required, with only limited exceptions, to be fully vaccinated and to provide proof of vaccination status 
prior to boarding an airplane to the United States. That's U.S. Department spokesman Ned Price. And joining us on the Como Newsline is ABC's Alex Stone. Alex, some families have waited 20 months to get back together again. Yeah, it's been a really long time. This is a big day for the the tourism industry that they've been waiting for along the border at theme parks, at hotels, that this is where things begin to get back to normal again, that finally foreign travelers can come to the U.S., spend their money, see family. And at Heathrow today in London, they had Uncle Sam performers, they had people dressed up as the Statue of Liberty. These ladies on the first flight out of Heathrow heading for the U.S. today, and they said, boy, they could not wait. So my nephew, my mum's first grandson, we haven't met him. He's just turned one, so we're really excited. Haven't seen my brother and sister in all for two years. And the industry's been hit really hard. If you lived in the U.K. or China or even Mexico or Canada for almost two years, year and a half, coming to the U.S. just to vacation has not been allowed. But today it all changes. For the West Coast as well, it means a lot of money at LAX. They're gearing up for the crowd. Heath Montgomery at LAX says that the numbers of people coming in going to go way up really quickly. Today, we're, we're processing about 13,000 international visitors a day. We think that in the next couple of months, that number could rise to 35 or 40,000 people a day. So we're effectively going to be tripling the total number of international visitors over the next couple of months, which is a huge deal to us. It means billions of dollars for the West Coast, and many of today's inbound flights already totally full. Delta Airlines seeing a 450% increase in bookings into the U.S., searches for flights to the U.S. quadrupling. United has about 30,000 passengers flying into the U.S. on international flights today. They say their planes are sold out. And Elisa, a symbolic move at London Heathrow, Virgin and British Airways rolled down on parallel runways, taking off together this morning, flying to New York to commemorate the return to U.S. travel. Not quite wingtip to wingtip, but almost as they rolled down simultaneously. Both of the noses came up at the same time, and then they went off into the sky to say that the return of travel is now here. And for border towns, I'm sure it's somewhat similar along the Canadian border, but really along the Mexico border, the towns like Calexico and El Paso and even San Diego, that they have really hurt, that they've got a lot of businesses right along the the border itself where every day before the pandemic, people would come over, walk over who were not U.S. citizens. They would legally come over to eat lunch or to shop. There's a big outlet mall in San Diego right along the border. The back of it is the border wall where people from Tijuana come in and they get outlet deals at Coach and at Adidas and Van Heusen and other places and then they bring their other purchases and they walk back into Mexico. That has all been shut off for almost two years. This is a lot of money now coming into U.S. border towns where people are going to be able to come across. And cities like New York. Yeah, I mean, you think of all the the flight traffic that will be coming in or San Francisco or L.A. or Seattle from Asia, that this is a a lot of money uh, coming in, billions and billions of dollars coming into each of these cities. And uh, it's really going to ramp up here pretty quickly. And the other thing that the industry has talked about is they've got to be ready. Already they've got shortages of pilots and flight attendants and hotel workers. But this is really now going to be game on of honeymoons that are going to be taken, family trips that are going to go forward that were put on hold two years ago. And for those traveling, exactly what do they need to know if they're coming into the U.S.? If they're flying in and not a U.S. citizen, so if you have a family member who's coming in, they have to have proof that they have been fully vaccinated and that they have a negative test, an approved negative test. If you're driving in, coming in from Canada or from Mexico, that over a land border, just proof of vaccination, that that's all that a foreigner is going to need coming into the U.S. But if you're going to fly, it's got to be proof and a negative test as well, and then you're allowed in.
ABC's Alex Stone. Thank you so much, Alex. You got it. Thanks, Alicia. Still to come, the latest on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Once again, here's Como's Elisa Jaffe. The last of the witnesses in the trial of accused murderer Kyle Rittenhouse taking the stand, a police officer, a use of force expert, and a self-described journalist covering the 2020 protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Joining us on the Como Newsline is ABC's Royal Oaks to talk about this. But Royal, besides those people, it was that sobbing testimony yesterday of 18-year-old Rittenhouse that has a lot of legal experts comparing notes. What did you take away from that? Very dramatic testimony. I think Rittenhouse helped himself tremendously. You know, in high-profile cases, many times, it isn't just O.J. Simpson and Michael Jackson. A lot of folks just don't testify. They can rely on the Fifth Amendment, but it frustrates jurors. So here, it was a gamble, but I think it paid off because Rittenhouse, he was 17 when the shooting happened. Uh, He was sobbing so uncontrollably, he couldn't even speak. The judge had to call a 10-minute recess. He, He looks so young. I think this reduced the chance of a conviction or at least of a 60-year sentence, which he theoretically could if they went for a murder conviction. I've heard some legal analysts talk about how his mom started crying before he even started speaking and that after he sobbed on the stand, he glanced at the jury, she glanced at the jury. Uh, That's sort of saying, hey, it's more calculation than raw emotion. What have you heard? It's very possible. Yeah, the people are talking that way. It's very possible the the jury could say this guy's putting on an act. And of course, <laughs> he's going to pay big time if they come to that conclusion. But, you know, it's it's not surprising for a 17 year old guy whose life has been turned upside down. Uh, he's accused of murder. He could go away for 60 years or more. It's not surprising to think that this would be a very traumatic, emotional thing that would be tough for him to get through. You know, at the end of the day, the jury is going to have a tough call. On the one hand, what is this guy? Some sort of Bernard Getz subway vigilante who shows up. He doesn't even live there. He brings an AR-15 rifle. Why is he doing it? On the other hand, there's a lot of evidence that some guys were chasing him and pointing guns at him and a couple of them were grabbing at his gun barrel. So if the jury focuses on that, uh, he could not only uh, find himself guilty of, of a relatively minor, lesser included offense, it's always possible they could simply find him not guilty because of self-defense. Talk about the friction between the prosecution and the judge, because there were some very heated moments and uh, the lead prosecutor and the judge, the, it got to the point where the judge is admonishing him. And in amazingly, the judge actually sort of lost it in front of the jury. And that's really got to hurt the prosecution's chances because, you know, jurors take their cue from from the judge. And, and what has happened, of course, is that the judge had said, look, he took the fifth for a while and you're not supposed to comment on the fact that he took the fifth. It's his constitutional right to remain silent. And so prosecution don't do it. Well, they did it. They tried to circumvent that rule and the judge went ballistic. And then there was another issue where there was some early testimony about the possibility that maybe Rittenhouse had indicated, yeah, I'm looking forward to shooting some looters. Well, the judge did not think that was reliable evidence, so he told the government, don't go there. They did go there. They tried to circumvent that rule as well. So the judge is mulling over whether to declare a mistrial and just start the whole thing over. What do you think is going to happen? 
I doubt that the judge will do that because judges hate to declare mistrials. It's such a waste of, of public energy and time and the jurors' time. Instead, the judge can issue a very stern admonition to the jury, disregard certain evidence or comments you may have heard. He can yell at the prosecution again. The judge does not want to start this whole thing over. ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. Appreciate your time, Royal. Thank you. That's Como's Elisa Jaffe. And finally, Washington State is getting a new head of elections. Democratic State Senator Steve Hobbs will be Washington's new Secretary of State. Governor Inslee made the announcement on Wednesday. We wanted to appoint someone who had demonstrated independence, who had demonstrated the ability to act in a bipartisan basis. Hobbs will replace outgoing Secretary of State Kim Wyman, who is taking a job with the Biden administration. Wyman has served as Washington's Secretary of State since 2013. In that time, she developed a reputation as a neutral arbiter of elections beholden to no political party. In a statement, Wyman said, quote, Senator Hobbs is a proven leader and dedicated public servant. As a lieutenant colonel in the Washington Army National Guard, I am confident Steve will bring the same commitment to service and integrity to the office of the Secretary of State. And Kim Wyman will be our guest next week for one last interview before she heads to Washington, D.C. And that'll do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and much more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.